But I have a joyful gratitude for you as I remember you. And we have talked about that relationship, that close relationship that Paul had with this particular group of believers. Now, as he was thinking back in this gratitude uh, that he has for them, he says, I remember the good and the godly things about you in the time that we spent together. And the fact that we are connected by the partnership in the gospel that we have shared. He said, I'm confident that God is going to continue and complete his good work that he's begun in your lives. And then he closed that part of his time by saying, and I want to assure you that I have an authentic affection for you. And those are all the things that we looked at last week as we were looking at those first few verses of what would be turned into his actual prayer. Now, I just wanted to mention one more time as we get ready to move forward that it's important for us to notice that before Paul gets into his actual prayer, that he took a moment to focus on the relationship that he has with these people. And the fact that it's a relationship that is focused on their mutual relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship where Jesus is both the focus that brings them together, but he's also the glue that keeps them together. Now, it's very common for us to say that Christianity is not a religion. It's not just things we say we believe. It's not just activity or behavior that we engage in. But that Christianity is about a relationship. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And having put saving faith in Him as our, as our Savior, we are brought into a relationship with Jesus. And through that relationship with Jesus Christ, we are in a right relationship with God the Father. So Christianity is defined not by what we say we believe. It's not defined by what we say we do. It's defined by this relationship that we've come into with Jesus Christ. Well, in a very similar way, being part of a church family is not just about belonging or being a member. Being a church family is not just that we've agreed we're going to come together and do certain activities together. We're going to come together and have certain ministries that we do together. It's not even the fact that we have agreed that we're going to gather together on Sunday mornings and worship the Lord together. When God looks down on Grace Bible Church or any church, He sees us as people that are in relationship, not only with Him, but we're in relationship with each other. We are a family. And we are brought together by Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the Scripture, the word Christian is only used three times. It's the word that we use most often to describe ourselves, and yet it's not used frequently in Scripture at all. The word that's used in Scripture over four dozen times to describe who we are is the word disciple. And being a disciple is someone who imitates and follows someone. And so we are defined as people who have this relationship with Jesus, but we also have a commitment that we are going to imitate and follow Christ as his followers. And so we're disciples. And Jesus has said, I do not want you to be a disciple. I don't want you to try to imitate and follow me in isolation just by yourself. I want you to come together as a community, as a family, as a group of believers, and now be imitators and followers together. We grow together in community and through this relationship that we share with each other. 
And it's Jesus' idea. It wasn't like the apostles sat around and said, you know, we've got to come up with some way to do this, so let's form a church. Be a mess if they did. Jesus Christ initiated the church. Jesus is the one who came up with this plan. He's the one who created this relationship, and he's the one that's called us in the community. And so in the same way that we are Christians, we're disciples through a relationship, through faith that brings us into a relationship with Jesus. We are members. We are a part of this church body. And by that, I don't mean just those of you who have taken a step of membership. I'm talking to all of us who have made Grace Bible Church the place we gather for worship. We are in relationship with one another through Christ who brings us together and glues us together as a community. And that's what Paul is saying in those first verses. As the old song said, we are family, brought together by Jesus Christ himself. And so now, having looked back at that fact that there's this joyful gratitude that he has to be in this special relationship with these fellow believers, now Paul looks forward. He looks ahead. And as he looks ahead, he says, this is my desire for you. And through the pen of Paul, this is God saying to us, this is my desire for you. This is what I want for you as you look forward. Because not only are you in this special relationship together, but I want you to move forward together in your relationship with me. I want you to grow in your relationship with me. And so as we look at this prayer itself in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see that we can experience joy when we grow together. We can experience joy as we grow in our relationship with God together. And he lays this out in this prayer, in, starting in verse number 9. And it says, and, it, and Paul writes, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so let's look at these four prayer requests that Paul gives here, that as we live these requests, as God does these things in our lives, we will experience joy as we grow in our relationship with the Lord together. And the first thing he says is this. His first request is, May you abound in love more and more. May you abound in love more and more. He says in verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. To be able to understand fully what Paul is talking about here, Paul is talking about abounding in our love for him, but also abounding in our love for each other. Now, the word abound means to possess something in abundance so that we have more than enough. Another interesting part of of it is that we have an expectation of what full is and it gets exceeded. (laughs) In other words, we have what we think is the limit of something, but then we get more. It's the idea of taking a pitcher and sticking it underneath the faucet. You turn the faucet on and you just let it go. You know, it fills out the pitcher, and then the pitcher begins to overflow, and then the water just keeps coming. That's God's love. 
In, Matt, in Romans chapter 5, God talks about the fact that the love of God has been poured into us overflowingly by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's abounding in love. I want you to be overflowing with the love for both God and for each other. And he wants this more and more. He acknowledges, first of all, in this phrase, you know what, this is kind of, this really is important. He's not saying the Philippians aren't doing this. In fact, the phrase there is the idea of, I know you're doing it. I know you're loving God. I know you're loving each other, but there can be more. He's actually going to affirm them for what they're already doing later in the letter, but in this place he's going, but you can do more. You can experience more. You can love God more. You can love each other more fully. There's always room for growth. You see, the love that we're talking about here, as we're going to see in just a moment, it's not the love we conjure up within ourselves and give the people. It's the love God's poured into us that we now share with others. And if the love of God is unlimited in its pouring, then it's unlimited in its giving. If God's love is unlimited in terms of it's always coming and there's always more of it, then we can now share that love with each other in a way that there's more and more to share. And that's what Paul's saying. More and more. And also he said, this is my prayer, because this unlimited love, as I've already said, it's coming from God. It's not coming from ourselves. So therefore, we can't conjure it up. We can't say, who love more and more. It's like, Lord, give me the grace to love more and more. This is something that comes from God. This is an enabling that comes from God that enables us to do something beyond what we could do ourselves because we do it by God's grace. And so we pray for it, and we ask for it. Turn, keep a finger in Philippians and turn to 1 John chapter 4, where the Apostle John talks about this idea of overflowing love that is received and then given. Well-known verses, 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, which is to say a payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. And that means love is matured in us. It's a beautiful picture. First of all, he's saying, first of all, the love that you have has come from God. You didn't love God first. He's loved you. And then the love that we are sharing with each other is that love of God given to us. Now we share from us. And the neat thing is where he says no one has seen God, but when you're allowing the love of God to dwell in you and to go out of you, what he's saying is then people begin to see God through you. People begin to experience the love of God through you. People begin to connect the dot, we're told in other scriptures, of you claim to be a Christian and you live so lovingly, and so therefore the God you claim to know must be a God of love. As Jesus said, it's the way that we love that manifests ourselves as his disciples. 
And so as Paul back in Philippians is praying for love to abound more and more, this is what he is talking about. This idea of God has given it, now you share it and do it more and more. He says, he says that we are to do it with knowledge. We are to do it with knowledge. You know, we have so many songs about love, don't we? <laughs> and so many people, even within the church, talk about, oh, we've got to love more. And, and the thing is, what does that mean? What's, how do you define that? How do you describe it? How do you actually express that? And the thing is, if this love is God's love that we're sharing, then we have to let God define it. We're not at liberty to decide what our love is going to be, and neither are we at liberty to decide how we're going to extend it. Because God has both defined it, and God has described how it's to be given. He defines it for us in that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that many of us had read at our weddings. (laughs) That's where he describes or gives this definition of love and says that love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so God has said, let me define what love is. But he's also said, now let me describe how you extend it. Let me uh, describe how you share it. And he does that through the 20 plus one another's that are located throughout the New Testament. Here's how you express love. And there are things like build one another up, which means help each other grow in the faith. He says, accept one another for who you are. And they are. He says, care for one another when there are needs. He says, encourage one another as you're discouraged. He says, show hospitality to one another. Make sure everybody feels included and a part of your life and a part of the church. And then he goes on. I uh, shared a link to the full list of those one another's in this past week's newsletter. And so if you don't get the newsletter, I encourage you to go ahead and contact Lisa at the church office by um, phone or email, and she'll make sure you get on that list. But in this last week's, there's over 20 of those that are listed, and those are just some of them. You know, God has given both the definition of love, and he's described for us how we are to share it with each other. And the beauty of it is, as we look at this definition, and as we look at the description of how to share it, and we go, my goodness, I don't think I can do that. God says, you don't have to, because I will do it through you. See, the beauty is that this does not matter on what we feel we can do it is on how much grace we are willing to receive from God and then be willing to be in obedience to that. See, it doesn't matter whether you're introverted or extroverted here. It does not matter whether you are expressive in your feelings and everybody knows what you think and feel or whether you're, you're more reserved with those things because God doesn't expect you to do this yourself. And I'll just say it again. This is the love of God poured into you that you now share with others. And that's why it's important that we do not withhold this love from each other. Because it's not our love to withhold. It is God's love to give. 
God's love to give. It's God's love to share. And so that's the first thing that he prays for, that we would abound in love more and more. And with knowledge, yes, the way he has defined it and described it, but also with discernment. Also, we are to love with discernment. To be perceptive about this, to have the right application of biblical knowledge to a real-life situation. Because God will give us the wisdom to know which expression of love is best in a given relationship at a given moment. Because you look down through that list of one another's and there's a time that we are to encourage each other, encourage one another, affirm one another. But there are also times that we are to exhort or challenge one another. There are times when we're told to comfort someone. That's just quietly come alongside and just be a support to them. But there are other times we're told to stir up or stimulate them to move forward. There are times when we are told to be patient with one another. That means give each other space to make mistakes. Give each other space to work things out. Give each other space to grow in a certain situation at a certain time. But then there's other times that we are to speak truth and love to one another. And the only way we know which of those expressions of love are best in the moment is when God tells us. And so we pray. We do not assume we know. We pray and ask God for that wisdom, that discernment, as Paul says here. How are we to express that love of God to this person in this moment? And then we let the Lord lead. He goes on to the next request in verse number 10. And he says that, so that we may approve what is excellent. We may approve what is excellent. We have this this abounding love, but then the next thing is so that we approve what is excellent. That is this, to to discern and desire God's best. This is a prayer to be able to discern and desire God's best. To approve means to examine and discern through a careful study investigation of something. The word was used in the first century to describe this, determining the purity of a mineral deposit. So if I have a piece of rock and there's gold in there or there's silver in there, there's a process of examining that that I can determine what's the purity rate of this particular piece of mineral. It was also used to describe deciding whether a currency or a coin was genuine or counterfeit. So it's this idea of being able to examine something carefully and then determine what is right or what is pure. It's the decision that I am going to get to know the Bible. I'm going to understand what it says, and then I'm going to be obedient to it. But it also has the idea of of having the godly wisdom to know how to apply a biblical command to a specific situation. So you could say it's the prayerful application of God's Word to real life. John MacArthur says that this word means to study, investigate, and determine the best possible way to obey and please the Lord and then to live accordingly. Now, what we're trying to approve, what we're trying to discern, what we're trying to examine is what's excellent. What is excellent? Really interesting word. The idea here is that you're looking at a whole bunch of good things. 
But as you carefully examine them, you determine this is the most excellent. It's not discerning between good and bad. It's discerning between good and best. And so it's the recognition that Paul is, saying, that Paul is recognizing that sometimes as we look at all these good options, it's not always easy to know which one is best. And so again, remembering this is a prayer. We ask God for that ability to approve, to examine, and to distinguish that which is best of all the good things that God puts before us that we could choose to do. Even Jesus Christ needed to do this. Even Jesus Christ needed to go to the Father in order to approve what was excellent, in order to discern what was God's best. Again, keep a finger in um, Philippians here and turn back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, which is actually a recording of one of the more remarkable days in the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we're going to be getting, landing on verse 29, but he's in the middle of a day in which he's already been busy. He's already healed someone and done some teaching at the synagogue. And we pick up the story of this particular day, and they're in the town of Capernaum, and we pick up the story in verse 29, and it says, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I mean, this is a great day. This is Jesus starting his ministry in the town of Capernaum. And by the end of the day, the whole town is gathered around the house where he's staying, and he's healing people, he's explaining some things to people, he's teaching people. I mean, he's gathered a crowd. This is a wonderful start to a ministry. But then note what happens the next morning. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting their demons. You see, what the disciples were saying is, okay, uh, prayer time's over. You've you got to get back into the Capernaum because people are waiting for you. Let's do next steps. Let's build on what happened yesterday. Let's grow this ministry thing. It's a great start, but let's keep going. And it makes sense. And it would have been a good thing to do. But Jesus says, but that's not the best. The best thing for me to do is to take my message and my healing ministry and start going to other towns and villages. And Mark wants us to understand something here. Jesus knows this because he's prayed. This comes after Jesus has spent time praying with the Father. And out of that prayer time, one of the things that the Father did was give Jesus a discernment to know what to do next. And so he goes to the other villages. You know, if, if Jesus needed to stop and say, Lord, 
Give me the grace to approve what is excellent. Give me the ability to discern and desire what's best. Then how much more do we need to do it? And be able to let the Lord give us those insights and allow us to look down at all the good things we could be doing and prayerfully determine, but this is what's best. This is what God is calling me to do. Having prayed for God's love to abound in us and having asked God for that ability to discern and desire is best for us, now we pray for the ability to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. The ability to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. Back into Philippians we go in chapter 1. And starting in that second part of verse 10, Paul continues to pray that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. May we be an authentic disciple of Jesus. Paul gives us three marks of an authentic disciple. And the first is that we are pure. We're pure. The word pure here means to be genuine. It's got, the the literal translation is to be tested by sunlight. It's to be tested by sunlight and found genuine. In the first century, fine pottery that was used in more affluent homes was relatively thin and therefore it was fragile. And so it was not uncommon at all that it would develop cracks when you fired it. Now when that happened, it was useless. And so it had to be thrown away. But some, more, uh, some less than honest shopkeepers would take that vessel then and they would fill those cracks with a hard wax. And when you glazed or painted that vessel, then you couldn't see the wax. But if you put a hot liquid into that vessel, the wax would melt, the liquid would, le- would leak out. And so the more honest shopkeepers would stamp the words sign sira on it, two different words, sign sira. And it meant in Latin, without wax. It was an invitation, go ahead and hold it up to the sunlight because no cracks here. This is whole. And so we get our word sincere or sincerity from it. So when you say, I'm a sincere person, you know you're a person with no wax. But it means that you are a person without cracks. You're genuine. In the context that we're talking about here, to be a sincere Christian is to be authentic in our seeking to know and then live for Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus that's coming out of the heart. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's heartfelt. That's what it is to be pure. Now, sometimes you and I know, don't we, that we can go through periods or in a certain situation in which we project something that we're not. We've all done that. Project a spirituality that's not sincere, that's not necessarily heartfelt. Whether it's a certain behavior that we really don't, you know, isn't a real part of us when you don't see what I'm doing, or whether that is a church, going to church and being busy with church stuff. But we know that our heart's lagging behind. 
And sincere is when we are able to recognize that and go, now, Lord, give me a heart to know, love, and walk with you. It's a prayer, not a determination. And the Lord gives grace to be able to have that heartfelt relationship again. It's taking our lives and holding it up to the light of God's Word and allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal the cracks that sins created in my life. And then allow the Lord to fill those cracks, not with the wax of projecting, but with real spiritual growth through grace. It's not a matter of being perfect. This is a pattern of sincerely seeking to know, love, and follow Jesus. And all the ups and downs and all the times that the Lord has cracks he needs to repair, that's a part of all of our lives. The next thing he says is that we are to be blameless. And this is getting to our reputation with other people. If purity is the positive presence of a genuine love for Jesus, then blameless is the absence of any sinful conduct that would be destructive to my testimony. It's that idea that um, this particular failure leads people to question my sincerity and maybe even brand me as a hypocrite. To say one thing, but I've done another in a way that is just sinful, that just is a failure. And my testimony is, if not destroyed, it's at least damaged. Now, it's very important to remember that God is a God full of mercy. And so when we do experience one of these failures, if that does happen, there's always forgiveness and restoration that is offered. Peter and his denials of Jesus stands as a testimony of God's restoring ministry. Jesus himself goes to Peter right after his resurrection and restores him into relationship with him. And then later at the end of the Gospel of John, he restores him to his ministry. Where there, is, where there is failure followed by repentance, there is forgiveness and there is restoration. But it's far better to remain pure and blameless. It's far better to not fall into those failures. And those two work together as we seek that walk with the Lord. By his grace, we avoid the pitfalls. But if we fail through repentance, there is always forgiveness and restoration. Praise God. Then we are filled with the fruit of righteousness, Paul says. We're filled with the, with the fruit of righteousness. And here's that true mark of being an authentic disciple of Jesus. That our lives reflect his life and our lives reflect his character not anything that's manufactured on our own efforts. This is grown by God through grace, and it comes through our relationship with Jesus, and it comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus himself said to, to um, his disciples in John 15 that spiritual fruit fall, comes out of our relationship with him. Well-known verses, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be filled. I love that last line. So that the joy of Jesus will be in you, and therefore your joy will be full. Spiritual fruit is also the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in Galatians chapter 5, where it says the fruit of the Spirit is joy and love and peace and kindness and self-control. All of this has grown in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life that flows through us for that grace that flows through us that comes out of our relationship with Jesus. And we have fruit We are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount that this spiritual fruit will bring glory to God. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that brings us to the last part of the prayer. This final um, phrase in the Lord's prayer, and this prayer, not the Lord's prayer, in, this, in Paul's prayer in Philippians, and he says, all of this is to the glory and praise of God. All of this is to the glory and praise of God. Here's the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer, and it's the ultimate purpose of any believer's life. It is having this desire for God to be praised and glorified in my life and through my life. The ultimate purpose of every believer is to live in a way that he is praised and glorified as I know and honor him. And we'll be talking about that more in the days ahead of having that one purpose that we share together. Together, we will know and glorify God. Together, our purpose and desire is that God be praised and God be honored in our lives and through our lives, and that's why we're here. And that's what Paul prays. And you know, when when that is the desire of my heart, when the desire of my heart is to fully know God and to honor God and that he would be praised and glorified in and through my life, then I can join Paul in praying here. And I can say, Lord, let your love abound more and more in and through me with knowledge and discernment that you give. And God, give me the wisdom to discern and desire your best for my life. By your grace, enable me to be an authentic disciple of your son, Jesus. And all of this, Lord, so that I bring praise and glory to you. Amen. That's Paul's prayer. My encouragement is that be our prayer, both individually And then together as a church family, that as Grace Bible Church moves into God's tomorrow for us, everything that is done will bring praise and glory to his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do pause now and thank you, God, for this abounding love. God, I I thank you that as John has told us, that you pour your love into our lives and it's evidenced at the cross where we have received, Lord, forgiveness from our sin. We have been brought 
into a relationship with you through him in saving faith in Jesus. And then three days later, in the power of his resurrection, you have given us the promise of eternal life. All because you love us. God, may we abound now in your love as we love you with all of our being and as we now seek to learn and grow in how to love each other as Jesus has loved us. All, Lord, to the praise and the glory of your name we pray. And all together, God's people say, Amen.